all of the thoughts and feelings that they're taking in from you as, as their primary caregiver, as their parent, go into their brain and, and they're stored, all the neuron connections. So you're either creating in those everyday interactions moments of positive self-worth or low self-worth where they feel bad or shameful about themselves. And that, that's what I grew up with. Those were not the moments I wanted to give to my kids or, or share with your viewing audience and, and with the world. Thanks for joining me on the Healing Compass podcast, where we bridge scientific with holistic so that you can be empowered to grow, heal, and overcome in your own way. You are provided various insights and resources on a range of topics, from mental health to chronic pain, because well-being is not a one-size-fits-all, and you hold the compass to your own path. I'm your host, Lori Crow, aka Sway. What message is in store for today? Let's find out. All right. Thank you for joining me today. So this is a really, really powerful and important message uh, that we're about to hear. And I am so thankful for Karen coming on today. Um, She has a lot of valuable um, insight on parenting, uh, the parenting paradigm, uh, as she calls it. And um, the what we are actually looking at as a mental health crisis amongst uh, teenagers, our youth, um, our young adults, um, and there's a lot of contributing factors, a lot of contributing factors, but in order to curb it, it really takes a mindful effort from the parent or caregiver. And she lays out her methods um, and how she's learned to do this for her children, raising her children, um, due to the fact that um, she didn't have a lot of guidance and a lot of support uh, and a lot of positive influence when she was growing up. So this is really fascinating. I just came across an article put out by the Wall Street Journal reporting a uh, survey that was conducted by the CDC and comparing the years 2011 to 2021. And this is a snippet of what it says. It says, though both high school girls and boys reported experiencing mental health challenges, girls reported record high levels of sexual violence, sadness, and suicide risk. Um, in 2021, so in the midst of the pandemic, still dealing with the pandemic after a whole year of, you know, craziness, 57% of high school girls reported experiencing persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in the past year, compared with 36% in 2011. 30% reported they seriously considered attempting suicide in 2021, up from 19% in 2011. And again, there are layers, there are many factors, and obviously the different, the major difference between 2011 and 2021 is the pandemic. You know, they've, they've dealt with this isolation, uh, stripped away from the social craziness and the social um, discoveries that they're having in high school and to have that taken away and completely shut down your social life. Um, yeah, that can be really, really overwhelming and very, very confusing in its own. 
but we have layers here. We have decades of layers. We have decades of wounds that need to be healed. And this is where parents and caregivers come in. So uh, I really hope that you really enjoy this message and find some value in it and really heed what is being said here because I can't stress enough how important the role is of a parent and caregiver in a child's life, especially in their early, early years, to shape how they are going to be later on as an adolescent, as a teenager, as a young adult, and then as they get older, as an adult, and how they handle life. So um, here we go. All right, well, today I have with me Karen Braveheart. She's a lawyer turned entrepreneur and mom of three little munchkins. She graduated cum laude from Rutgers University, majoring in English and criminal justice with a minor in philosophy. She also carries a JD degree from Hofstra's School of Law, and she is the founder and CEO of Prodigy Kids. Her website, including her ebook and her IG and YouTube links are all in the description of this episode. Welcome today, Karen. Thank you for being here. Lori, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited in the conversations that we've had. I think you have a lot of wonderful stuff to share. So I'm really excited to dig into this. All right. Well, we're going to start going way back for a moment just to get to know who Karen Braveheart is. So Karen, will you share with us a little bit about what your what your childhood was like? Yes, happy to. So I'm a San Diego native now. I grew up in Queens in New York, one of the five boroughs, uh, born and raised there. Um, that's where I attended my schooling. And I had a, a different childhood than, than most. My parents had me a lot later in life. My dad was in his 50s. My mom went, was in her 40s. And um, while my parents did their best, um, my childhood was less than idyllic. Um, my dad was abusive and my mom was neglectful. And uh, it was through those experiences that actually uh, our mission for Prodigy Kids was born. And uh, I grew up learning more of what not to do for my parents than what to do. So I kind of flipped that with my own three kids and my own work in the world today. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to have to dig into that a little bit more and explore why you are where you're at now in life. So yeah, we'll have to talk about that. Okay. So what has been your career? And now that it's shifted in a different direction, you can share what you do now, but let's, let's have a little bit of background on your career because you have some really interesting credentials. Yes. Happy to share. So I have a, a strong background uh, as an attorney. I practiced law in New York City for 10 years. I was a trial attorney for uh, about six of those 10 years. Um, I had like eight cases on the trial calendar at any given time, and, and I, I loved it. Um, I did mostly civil. And uh, then I actually, um, as life took me in a different direction, I ended up opening up my own uh, real estate practice. I did transactional work. I've always been interested in real estate. Was that and, in New uh, York or here? In New York. Okay. Yeah, in New York. In New York, they use attorneys uh, to do real estate closings, whereas here, the the brokers and the realtors uh, handle that. Okay. So a little, little bit different um, way of doing things. So uh, yeah, I did that. I had a really successful law practice. And then um, we ended up moving out here. I was actually pregnant with my, my oldest daughter, Sophie. I was five months pregnant, bought a one-way ticket um, with my then husband and, and moved out here and loved it ever since. So what um, made you decide to jump 
from coast to coast. That's a huge. It's a great story. It's a great story. So I had a client and I call her my bastard angel with all due respect. Sometimes you have those people in your life that just completely detour you, but it's meant for a reason. So I was doing this in in New York. They have what's called co-ops. You're essentially buying, uh, it's like a condo or or an apartment out here, uh, but you're buying shares in a corporation, similar to how you'd buy shares in like um, Microsoft. Okay. So um, it was the holidays. I remember it was December and she kept on showing up at my office. She kept on calling me. She kept on asking me, you know, what was going on, you know, when we were going to close. And this is really close to the holidays and Christmas time. And what happens is when, when you buy a co-op, you have to go before a board. Um, and the board, you know, they want to make sure that you're a good character, that you can afford to make the payments and you'll be a nice person for the neighbors to live with. You have to submit a whole board package. And since it's the holidays and it's snowing in New York, sometimes it can take longer. But she wanted this apartment so badly. And I was doing a killer job for her. And I said, listen, you have to be patient because if you piss off the board, they're never going to accept you. So long story short, she kept on showing up, driving me crazy. Um, I turned to my, my husband at the time and I said, oh my God, this lady's driving me nuts. And he's like, you know what? I've got some friends in San Diego. Let's go visit them. So we'd always love Montauk, New York, which is the Eastern end of Long Island. It's past the Hamptons. And uh, we came out here, we're driving down the 101 and this is a true story. We're right by uh, Lucadia Pizza. And I just, I loved it. And he turns to me and he said, oh my God, I love it here. Do you want to move? It reminds me of Montauk. Oh. And I said, yes. Wow. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. And so you've been yeah. here since when? Gosh, for 17 years now, believe it. My my daughter is 17 years old. So uh, well, a little bit less. Yeah, 16 and a half. Okay, so not all little munchkins. You, you got some older munchkins. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's tremendous. Okay. And so, okay. So you've done the lawyer thing. You've done the real estate thing. What else? Uh, so yeah, when my, I have three kids, they're now, uh, my daughter, Sophia is 17. My son, Ryan is 14 and my youngest, uh, Justin is 12. And when I moved out here, I wasn't barred in California to practice law. So I actually took, took my, my, um, my business with me, but I found that it was really challenging to do it coast to coast. Mm -hmm. So, um, I got my broker's license in, in real estate. Um, and I started doing some closings and also during that time, um, I was teaching. I taught at a local law school. I taught at various universities. So I was teaching business law classes, law classes, real estate classes, um, things like that um, when my kids were really little. And then I I had a single moment with my daughter that actually pivoted me and, and completely changed my life into what Prodigy Kids is today. It was just a, one of those parenting moments and I invented something. And Wow. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's like definitely a new course because it's, it's not law and it's not real estate. Um, so we're going to have to delve into that a little bit and understand what prodigy kids, uh, is about here in just a minute. Um, so you said that you had a pinnacle moment in your life that completely changed your, your course and your focus. Um, so let's dig a little bit back into you know, how you were raised and your childhood and looking at those traits in your parents, because you said it wasn't the healthiest of um, environments for you growing up. So what were the traits of your parents that you later became aware of that made you want to raise your children differently? That's a great question, Lori. So 
you know, it's interesting when I first became pregnant with my daughter, I knew right away that the biggest gift I could give to her was self-worth mm. the, the, the ability to love herself so she could bring her, her own dreams into reality. And, and how did I know that? I knew that from watching my parents. Mm. So I here, you know, I, I, I call my mother, my angel, but she's not an angel in the way that you would think of like the perfect mom who has dinner on the table every single night. And she's there to support you at every single sporting event. She didn't do any of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, my mom and my father both perpetuated abuse cycles with what they grew up in. And I, I've since developed deep compassion for both of them. And I'm a cycle breaker and I'm proud of that. So I'm raising my kids completely differently than how I was raised. And for my mom, I observed her uh, stay with an abusive husband. I remember after graduating law school and, and I was able to support myself and I created a really nice, peaceful, loving home. I invited her to come live with me. I, would, I was able to financially support her at the time. I begged her. I asked her a million times, a thousand different ways. And the answer was always no. She chose to stay with an abusive husband and to raise her kids in that kind of environment. And then the story um, and how, how I came onto this whole thing about self-worth and prodigy kids was um, I got a phone call one day um, from her, card, her cardiologist and he asked me, he said, Karen, are you sitting down? And I had been taking care of my parents since I was 14. My dad nearly died um, and my parents were a lot older and had health issues. So I kind of had to grow up earlier than most and just become really independent. Those skills, by the way, serve me now as, as an entrepreneur. Um, so uh, there's reasons why things happen. And for my mom, when I got that phone call, I, I, I remember that I remember explicitly and I chose to stand up and I said, OK, just what's going on? And I knew something was wrong with my mom and it was serious intuitively. And I, it took me months to convince her to go to the cardiologist. And he said, Karen, her kidneys are not working. So I said, what do you mean they're not working? And he says, one is completely shut down. The other one's only working at 25%. And I said, okay, so the lawyer, the problem solver in me was like, okay, let's operate. Let's, we'll get her a kidney transplant. Would she be a candidate? And he said, this is the part I want you to sit down for. He said, Karen, your mom has congestive heart failure. She has a hole in her heart. I said, a hole in her heart. I said, how the hell does someone get a hole in their heart? And he said, they don't call high blood pressure the silent killer for nothing. And he said, Karen, she hasn't been taking her meds for the past 10 years. And this actually makes me emotional to tell the story. So what do you mean she hasn't taken her meds for the past 10 years? I said, I've been taking her to every doctor appointment. They were living in New Jersey. I was in New York at the time. I would, at 4 a.m., I would drive there, take the doctor's appointment, come back, go to court, or do whatever I had to do at the time. Um, and I was balancing a lot. And I was filling her prescriptions. I would fill them and I would bring them. And she said, Karen, she's been dumping them. I said, what do you mean dumping them? She said, your mom confided in me that she had side effects from them. Her feet would swell. She couldn't bowl. She couldn't do her gardening. She couldn't do the things that she really wanted to do in life. So she didn't take them. I said, well, why didn't she ever speak up for herself? Why didn't she ever say anything? And he says, I don't know. So I said, how many years does she have to live? What, what's the prognosis? He said, not good. He said, I'll give your mom, if she can thrive on dialysis, which is probably going to start in a couple of months, I'll give her a couple of years to live at best. And he's like, I'm so sorry. And we hung up. So I called my mom and I 
I didn't tell her the, the prognosis part about a couple of years. I didn't tell her that. And I, I said to her, I told her what he said. And I said, are you aware of this? And she says, yes. And I said, he told me that you've been dumping your meds all these years. I have gone to pick up your prescriptions hundreds of times and taking to all these doctors. Why? I love you. Why would you do this to yourself? She said, I had side effects, made my ankle swell. I said, but why didn't you ever speak up? I would have switched up your mouth. I would have done anything. She never wanted to speak up or rock the boat or anything like that. I said, mom, 10 years, you've been dumping them for 10 years. And she said, yes. So she ended up going on to dialysis and I did a lot of research, found her the best place in New Jersey at the time. And it was really, really hard on her body. And what happened was the same, at the same time, I was actually birthing my oldest daughter, Sophia. I had to say goodbye to my mom over the phone. I heard the death rattle in her voice oh. and I said goodbye. And she passed away with pictures of my daughter, Sophia in her lap. Yeah. And my sister was by her side, my loving sister, whom I'm very close with. Yeah. And here she bravely elected. You can't survive more than 24 hours after you elect to take yourself up dialysis. Your body will just be filled with toxins. Yeah. So she she courageously said, I don't want to live like this. Her body had just failed one thing after another. On She lost her sight. She lost her bodily functions. She couldn't do anything. She was in a wheelchair and she didn't want to live her life like that. So she died with her body failing her, but her mind completely intact. Wow. <laughs> wow. And that experience... And just, uh, you know, my experiences growing up informed me that this person was the most beautiful person. She died with these beautiful God-givingness inside of her. My mom loved gardening so much. People used to drive by our house and, and, and ask me, Karen, who's your, who's your landscape architect? You know, who's your landscape designer? She used to design these beautiful English gardens and countrysides. I mean, it reminds me of the beautiful Rose Garden um, that... Um, up in LA at the Arboretum that I take my kids to and uh, at the Huntington Museum too, up in San Marino and just beautiful English gardens. And I said, my mom does it. And I asked, I told my mom, you can create a business out of this. You can make money. Never wanted to. She was also a beautiful ballroom dancer, incredibly talented. I get my dance talent from my mom. It's like DNA. I love to dance. My mom was, she could have been a, an amazing, talented ballroom dancer. But here I saw a person, and I hate to say it's about my beloved mother, but she lived what I call a wasted life. She died with her gifts inside of her, and there was only one reason. And that was because she didn't have self-worth. Yeah. She didn't love herself enough to take care of her children, to have a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage, raise children in that environment, bring her own you know, unique gifts into the world. And all of that informs me and informs Prodigy Kids. So for me, I want, I, I want to raise my kids the best way I can with self-worth, you know, and I've just learned through growing up intuitively how to create uh, what I call neuro emotional moments of connection with my kids. Mm -hmm. so, so in every moment I'm making my life less stressful as a parent, because I am teaching my kids how I'm not only instilling the thoughts and feelings of self-worth in my children's minds, but I'm also teaching them inner reliance and, and self-love in that moment too. So there's so much more I can share on that. That's, yeah, that's, that's a wonderful, profound um, 
um, cycle that this has taken for you uh, to be able to recognize that and know that that's, you know, you wanted to make sure that you were, you were being able to um, give your children what your mother didn't have. Right. And that, um, do you feel that um, down, you know, even before being in this marriage where, you know, it's sounding to me like in this marriage, she didn't have self-worth and she didn't really speak up in, in the relationship with your father. Is that correct? Yes. She didn't have self-worth enough to speak up, um, to take care of her own health and care enough. Lori, she didn't have enough self-worth, you know, it's every aspect of your life too. And I wanted to add to your comment about me raising my kids with self-worth. I wanted to share this with, with other parents too, and caregivers. So they too can, can raise, um, their children with self-worth. Um, I'm very passionate about this and, um, I also had to give that to myself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you had to figure out how, how that was, and you did it on your own. It sounds like, because it was, it was a realization that you saw, um, with, you know, your mom's condition. And then also with your father's influence, because you shared a little bit about that with me, like how you became a lawyer, like Tell us the story about why you became a lawyer. <laughs> it's actually a funny story. So um, my dad uh, emigrated here with his family um, from Russia. And he comes at that time, you know, he comes from the capital of Kiev, which is actually the capital of Ukraine today. So he came over with his two parents. He was the youngest of six siblings and they were very, very poor. They only had the clothes off their back. My dad grew up on the Lower East Side of New York. He had holes in his shoes, if he had shoes, and he had no running water. And his dad was a philanderer and an alcoholic, and he wasn't around. So his mom was left to raise six young kids. I I don't know how she did it because I I had three kids close in age, and that's not not easy. I had one. I had one. (laughs) (laughs) How did people do multiple? I don't know. Well, my kids are at my three are actually a dream come true. But um, yeah, so what my dad, he, you know, my, his mom had a really tough time and he and his siblings all ended up becoming professionals, doctors, lawyers, one and, and entrepreneurs. Um, and his oldest brother owned a, a shoe store in Manhattan. My dad became a lawyer. Um, and yeah, my uncle was uh, a doctor and, uh, my aunts actually started businesses too, way before women were starting their businesses. Oh. And, uh, they, yeah. So I saw that they actually inspired me. And, uh, so with my dad, my dad actually came to me and, uh, he said to me, uh, listen, you're either going to become a lawyer or a doctor, or I'm going to disown you. True story. Whoa. Yeah. So this is, uh. I think it was in ninth grade at the time, maybe eighth wow. grade. Ninth. Wow. All right. Serious. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I always loved kids. I love biology. I was really good at the sciences. And I said, well, maybe I'll become a pediatrician. And I was never good at advanced math, trigonometry. I just didn't understand it. But the math I was really good at was geometry and numbers you know, things that, that I needed to run a business. You give me anything with a dollar sign and, and or a oh. huge spreadsheet. I, I got that, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't understand that. So I said, okay, I guess medical school is out. 
And then I remember uh, in getting disowned, I, I didn't like that option because I was like, how am I going to support? I had a part-time job at the time, but I was like, how am I going to support myself? Especially at that age, because it's a little bit, you're in a more vulnerable state. And so when you hear something like that, that's like, you don't feel like you have a choice. <laughs> like, oh, okay. I'm going to get disowned <laughs> if I don't do what my parents want me to do. Wow. Exactly. So uh, I ended up actually winning a debate competition in seventh grade. And I, I looked back at that and I said, okay, I, I can do this. And um, I decided to go to law school. And I have to say, even though um, that was the, the impetus behind me going to law school, it ended up being the best thing. I have no regrets. I, I loved practicing law. It, it taught me so many things and it allowed me to really I practice the natural business skills I have. Um, and I use it every day uh, as the CEO and founder of Prodigy Kids. So all those skills over those 10 years that I learned, I, I loved it. I learned that I was an entrepreneur at heart. I ran a really successful law practice. I built it up in a very short amount of time. And uh, I just, I'm a hustler. So uh, was, I love being on trial. And uh, yeah, those experiences were really good. So that's good. Cause like, you know, I'm sure that there are people out there who, you know, listened to their parents and their, their desires for them and they followed through with it and they're not happy with it. That's not who they were, but what you did, what I noticed that you did though, is you tapped into what you felt was successful for you or that kind of fueled you. Um, and that was going back to seventh grade debate. So it's like you took an initiative to find out if that is going to make you happy and successful. And you did, whereas many people won't, because at that age, you don't know what you want to do. Like you're still developing and you still have a ways to develop. So for you to be able to follow through with that and actually live out something that was satisfying and successful for you, um, you know, is, is commendable. So that's awesome. That's really yes. cool. And, and Lori, I'd, I'd love to add something to that too. While there was many aspects of practicing law that I loved, for me, there was always something deeper missing. There was always a deeper meaning or a deeper sense of purpose that was missing. It was like an emptiness that I felt inside of me. I remember where Oprah, you know, was always talking about soul purpose and, and, and things like that. And I was like, I want to find that. What, what is that? What is that? I want to find my soul purpose and what I meant to do in life. You know, and I realized that, uh, a certain part of me was practicing law because I was chasing the money and I wasn't doing what I loved. And I made really, really good money and there was things that I loved about it. It wasn't completely fulfilling to me. And a big part of that plays into my, my role as CEO and founder of Prodigy Kids and also as a parent. And I'm a big believer in supporting your kids and what they enjoy doing, what comes naturally to them, their, their own gifts. So that experience informs that as well too. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I can see how with some parents, I think the hesitation of investing in a child's um, uh, passions is is probably related to money. It really, really, it probably is stemmed in the financial because they're like, oh my gosh, they want to do this. Like, I can't afford that. So I'm going to subconsciously even maybe stifle them and try to deter them from accomplishing that because you know, that's a lot of money or it has low success rates. So like being an actress or something like that. And so I think may, maybe many caregivers and parents take the role, uh, even just subconsciously kind of sabotaging that for their children 
only because they don't see it as being successful or being a lot of investment. And they might think that if I invest in this for them now, are they really going to enjoy that 20 years later? Or is this going to be a waste of money and time? So that can be in the back of parents' heads, which I can understand. I can very well understand that if you're trying to invest in something that the kid, you know, a couple of years down the road or 10 years down the road, they don't stick with. It's like, why did I do that? But I think that being in the moment with the child and their passions and what they're into in the moment, one supports their self-worth and also maybe even catalyzes them to continue with that passion or develop um, new passions as they go and, and be able to give them that bolster of confidence to tackle anything that they want to do, even if it does change down the road. I think that that's so important, so important. Also, we noticed in the years of the pandemic here that a lot of people finally realized that they weren't living their self-worth in the job that they were doing. And so the pandemic kind of gave them that new perspective and realization. And I think a lot of people dropped what they were doing to pursue something new. And I'm sure that was scary. I'm sure that was intimidating, but they were listening to their hearts. They were listening to that soul purpose, realizing I'm not fulfilling my soul purpose. I am not happy. I don't care if I was making over a hundred thousand dollars this year, you know, I need to do what feels right for me and fulfill, um, that, that void for me. And I think that's so wonderful, so wonderful that people are actually doing that. It can be done. So I think a lot of people get stuck in this, um, hesitation of finding their self-worth because of being comfortable where they're at. Um, what's the word complacent? Um, oh, I have a good job. I have a secure job. I'm making good money. I've got benefits. I've got retirement set up. Um, but I'm not happy, but I'm just going to just do it anyways. Cause I'm, you know, in my forties or whatever. And, you know, I still think it's important to understand that it's never too late to uncover your self-worth and live out your self-worth. Absolutely. I mean, look at you, look at me, like it's possible. It's so possible. So, sorry, that's my little tangent. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I loved, I I loved all, all three of those, uh, different, uh, perspectives, if you will, that, that you, you brought up and everything. And I, I truly believe that happiness is, is so important. It's the most important thing. Um, and listen, we all have to make, I I don't care what age you, you are. I, I think that you have a responsibility to yourself, to your children, to make yourself happy. I don't care if you're in your seventies or your nineties. You know, I, I have a cousin that started running marathons in his seventies and his eighties, and now he's winning them. And it's kind of funny though, because I said, that's great that you, cause and he inspires me and he's in his eighties and, and he's running marathons in New York and uh, he travels the country too. And, uh, I, I said, I think that's great. He's, he's getting first place all the time. <laughs> it was kind of funny. I said, that's awesome. And uh, he said, Karen, I have to confide in you. I am finishing the races, but the only reason I'm coming in first is because I don't have anyone else in my age class that runs with me. (laughs) But there's a point to why I'm telling this story. Go run the race by yourself. Go out there, no matter what age you are, 41, whatever, 
go out and make yourself happy. And there's ways you can do it too. Um, you know, let's say you have a family to support, but you've got this dream in your heart and you're unhappy in your job. And believe me, I've been there. Okay. I've been there. I've been in jobs where I've liked, I've been in jobs that I've hated. I've been in jobs that I hated so much that I remember on, on a Sunday, I used to get a knot in my stomach because I wasn't looking forward to, to Monday. And then it started creeping into my Saturday. I remember 11 a.m. It wasn't even lunchtime. Saturday, it started creeping in. Then my whole weekend was ruined. I was like, oh, this is not good. So I know what it feels like to have to pay bills to support yourself. I've been on my own since I was 17. And sometimes you, you can still pursue. You Sometimes you can stay in the job and still pursue your dreams yeah. at the same time. And all it takes is putting one foot in front of the other, making a phone call, taking an action step. And it's going to make you feel so good inside just to, just to do that and make yourself happy. And then before you know it, you've got three months behind you, then six months behind you, and you're building this dream. And then let's say you build something, you find a job you love, or you start a business you love doing what you love, then, then the day is going to come where you can leave the job that you hate. Yep. And it makes a world of difference for you, your kids, your health, your life, your community, society, everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you touched on something else too, is that, um, you know, if you have a family to raise that, that is probably a big reason why a lot of people don't pursue, you know, tapping into their self-worth and living out their self-worth is like, I have a family to raise. I need to stay consistent with my work, you know, have benefits for them, so on and so forth. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean that you have to abruptly stop what you are doing. You can chip away at, you know, this new uh, passion of yours, this new career of yours in some way. And the one thing that you can know, and we're going to be talking about this, is that your children, doesn't matter if they're one or 15, they notice. They notice if you are unhappy, they notice if you're coming home and you are grumpy, you are in a bad mood and you go into your bedroom and close the door or, you know, they notice the tone of voice. They notice the tension and it rubs off on them. They also notice that you're making excuses. Even if you don't say it, they pick up on that. And so what better way to raise your child or children than to pursue your happiness, to pursue and live out your self-worth and show them that it can be done um, no matter what is going on with your life, no matter what you have on your plate, because it is possible. Why would you want to sit in life of unhappiness, just to feel like you are supporting your children. You can support your children in multiple ways, but to instill that message of self-worth is priceless. Priceless. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about self-worth. Let's delve into what does that mean? People are going, okay, well, what is it? <laughs> That's a, that's a great question, Lori. Sure. Happy to answer. I think a lot of people confuse the term self-worth with self-esteem. They're different. You know, self-esteem is skills, skills that you build. Um, you can have low self-worth, but still build great skills. Self-worth, the way I define it and the way I think it's universally defined is when a person, it's really self-love, you know, a person who believes in themselves, their dreams and their right to a happy life mm -hmm. in all areas of their life, mm -hmm. their family, their career, their relationships, all areas. And that comes from inside you. 
It doesn't come from anything external. Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. Okay. So then what do you do then to help shape your child's or children's self-worth? What have you been doing? What's your technique? What's your magic power here? <laughs> That's a great question. And I can spend weeks and weeks talking about it, but um, basically at its core is in my day-to-day -day moments and interactions with my children, I'm very aware of my tone. You mentioned this earlier, my tone, how I say things, how I come across to them. Um, I don't have knee-jerk reactions, you know, when they piss me off. And listen, I had three kids in four and a half years. I probably have experienced every kind of chaotic, crazy experience you can possibly experience with my kids. My kids are awesome. Um, I call them neuro-emotional moments of loving connection. So in this moment, I'm my child's teacher. They're teachable moments. You know, children don't know. They're young. So for example, here, I'll take a really... I'll ground this and, and I'll, I'll give like an everyday example that most parents with toddlers have experienced. And that's how my first product, the Addy Plate, actually came about. Um, toddlers are prone to throwing their plates, you know, and when Sophia was 18 months old, I didn't know that that was a thing. She threw her, her plate that I thought was supposed to stay stuck and, and it didn't. And I just wanted to pull my hair out. It was the most stressful experience here. You know, I, I spent all this time cutting up food. I was a working mom and I'm like, and toddlers eat like six times a day and then they're picky and then they don't necessarily eat what you give them. So you got to do something that it could take a lot of time. And I, I was always about, okay, I want to connect with my child. You know, mealtime is a time to connect with your, your kids, with your family. You know, I don't want to be stressed out at my kid. And I also knew that the first five years of brain development were the most important. 95% of all grown up behavior is governed by your subconscious brain. So 95% of your grown up behavior is governed by your subconscious brain. And when is your subconscious brain formed? In the early years of life. So those years are so critical. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of funny because your kids don't remember it, but they do because all of the thoughts and feelings that they're taking in from you as, as their primary caregiver, as their parent, go into their brain and, and they're stored all the neuron connections. So you're either creating and there's everyday interactions, moments of positive self-worth or low self-worth where they feel bad or shameful about themselves. And that, that's what I grew up with. Those were not the moments I wanted to give to my kids or, or share with your viewing audience and, and with the world. So for example, you know, when, when your, your kid throws, let's say your kid throws food. Okay. Cause I invented the Addy plate, which really, really works like no other to really stay stuck. And not only does it stay stuck, it's also childproof kids under the age of three. We designed this. It took a every year we designed especially so that kids under the age of three could not figure out how to how to remove the suction release mm -hmm. so we placed it out of sight and out of reach for young kids and also i studied how young kids and their fine motor skills and i realized that they didn't have the manual dexterity in the way we designed the plate to to grab it and lift it so that's why it's guaranteed to stay on. But what's more important and the most important thing why I cared so much and why I was in R&D on this particular product is because I wanted to create more of those loving moments between parents and kids. And only does the, the Addy plate, I'm not trying to pitch my product, by the way, I'm using it as, as a tool or as an yeah. example here. Um, it's a great product because not only does it allow for those moments to be created, but there's also special touch points 
where you can then engage with your child in interactive moments. You can discuss colors and shapes and textures and numbers, everything with the ID plate, how it works. There's a lid that toddlers love to lift on and off, on and off. There's special ergonomic curved edges, which really help them gain confidence with feeding. But here's another example. Let's say you don't, you haven't bought an Addy plate yet and, and your kid ends up throwing food all over the place and you just want to scream at your kid and yell at them because spaghetti is all over the floor and the meatballs and then you, you mushed up the banana and it took all this time to, to cook them this food. So the way I've, I've raised my kids and I've shared with other parents too is that you teach your child about their choices and an 18 month old is intelligent enough. Kids are smart, mm -hmm. intelligent enough and intuitive enough to understand. So let's say they throw the food. So if you tell your child, you know, nicely but firmly, hey, listen, you can't throw your food. We don't do that. You know, mom's not going to clean it up. So if you throw your food, you know, you're setting what I call a love boundary. If you throw your food, I'm going to get you out of the high chair. I'm going to get you out of your, you know, your booster seat at the table, and you're going to have to clean it up. And you can show them how to do it. They're going to have to clean up. And I'm going to take your food away from you. Mm -hmm. So if you want food, you're going to have to not throw it. And if you do throw it, you're going to have to clean it up. Hmm. So there's multiple things going on there. One, you're talking to your child calmly and in a loving manner. Two, it, you're making the situation less stressful for yourself because you are setting what I call a love boundary. You're saying, I'm not going to clean it up, but you're going to clean it up. And listen, it, it's going to take them a while, but they'll, they'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, you're also, um, you're teaching them to respect you and your boundaries, mm -hmm. you know, so you're making life a lot less stressful for you as a parent. You know, I know so many parents are like, oh, I'll just clean it up. I'll just get the dog to clean up, clean up, but you're not teaching your child how you'd like them to behave in a certain moment, but it's really not about their behavior. It's about their choice. Yeah. Hey, you're choosing to do this. And that's the, that is a key differential here with self-worth. You're not making a child feel bad at their core. You're not making them feel shamed. Oh God, you're the worst kid ever. My kid is so bad. You're so bad. You're so bad. I've heard parents do this yeah. in front of me. You're so bad. No, it's their choice. At 18 months old, they don't know. They're just curious. They're just blowing their food. Oh, yay. That, you know, look at physics now. <laughs> they're learning. They're curious. They're, yeah. they're learning. They don't understand. But for as a parent or as a caregiver, I think it's, so critical to tell them, Hey, I don't agree with your choice. And here's why. Yeah. And what I have found with my own kids, and listen, I'm no perfect parent, but I have raised kids that, that are resilient and they're strong and have a strong sense of self. And I, I see that now as they're older, you know, 17, 14 and 12, because they, you know, that this is a whole other topic, you know, about like peer pressures from teens and stuff. And they've got two feet on the ground. They're in their lane. They can really hold their own. And I see them have confidence and self-worth in certain things that I didn't have at their age. Mm -hmm. And it makes me happy for them. Um, but I, I, it's so important to teach your child about their choices. And in doing so, you're making your, your future life as a parent easier too. Because I've seen this, just this one little example. I've seen as my kids get older, they'll internalize it. When they're three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 12, older, Hey, if I throw the food, this is what's going to happen. This is my choice. I'm going to have to clean it up. I don't want to do that. That's a lot of work for me. I don't think I want to clean it up. But you're teaching them confidence and independence at the same time making their own decision. So all of these thoughts and feelings, confidence, independence about their choices, these are the positive self-worth neural connections. Yes. You know, 
that are forming in their brain, you're making your life less stressful at the same moment. So that's why I call these neuroemotional loving moments of connection. And that's kind of what we specialize in at Prodigy Kids. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. And um, in those younger years, again, that is when I'm going to bring up the word neuroplasticity. So it's basically what you're talking about is the neuron connections have not been had yet. And so they are shaping in every single moment. And it comes with direct um, direct interactions as well as indirect. So I do want to point out too, that their self-worth doesn't necessarily just develop with direct interaction and communication, but also in what they observe and pick up between interactions of others. So if there is any kind of um, issues of self-worth within their, um, their caregivers and their environment growing up, they would can pick on that as well. So even if they get a lot of wonderful, positive feedback as a child, yet they're noticing that that dynamic is not happening with, uh, amongst the caregivers or people that they're around when they're young, they can pick up on that. And that can register as their own self-worth, not feeling worthy. So, because the brain doesn't know, the brain doesn't know the difference. And so if they hear a message of, of, um, of like lack of self-worth out here, um, they're going to pick up on it and their brain is going to think I'm not worthy then if they're not worthy, I'm not worthy. And so that's an interesting dynamic to consider too. You can tell, tell your balloon in the face that, you know, oh, you're so good. I'm so proud of you. Like you can do it. But then if that's not happening over there and they're picking up that in the first three to five years, guess what? They're going to pick up on it and that can later surface in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, this uh, subconscious that we're talking about, this 95% subconscious, interestingly enough, this was something that I really wanted to delve into because I haven't done a lot of exploration in the um, 95% of our, our programming, whatnot is subconscious or our behavior is subconscious, which it is very believed. It is very understood in the science realm, but I we can't really say that scientifically it's been proven, but what it is saying is that we are not conscious 100% of the time. We do have conscious choices that we make and we have these conscious behaviors that we can make, but there is a lot of um, uh, automatic systems that happen within us and they begin as automatic um, and then come to the surface. And so technically that's, um, there's, there's different types of consciousness. I don't really want to get into the nitty gritty, but like, if we were to like, look back on Freud's theory, um, we have the conscious pre-conscious or it's subconscious (laughs) unconscious. And so there's a difference in all of that. So it's not an actual statistic, but the there is a huge scientific theory based on the neural activity conduction that is done automatically that we're finding um, happening in the body. So um, yeah, so uh, very fascinating stuff, very fascinating, but it is, this is like my, um, this is my juice right here where um, I think that the wiring 
um, and that neural um, connection that is happening so early on is the most vital, most important that parents need to pay attention to. And like you said, parents be more like teachers, be more like teachers. And I actually just had a guest on who brought that up and said, what if we were to change the word parent to teacher? How would we interact with our children differently? So that's something to think about. That is definitely something to think about instead of parenting, teaching, right? That can be very, very impactful and helpful. Yeah. Okay. So we understand self-worth. We understand how, you know, examples of how you can shape a child's self-worth. What, if any, challenges have you faced with that? Because I'm sure that there are going to be times that you're just like, Ooh, that didn't quite work the way I hoped, or this might take a little bit more effort than I expected. So can you share any challenges that you might've faced with this, um, this teaching of self-worth to your children? Yes. Um, happy to share. Um, what I realized from the neuroscience research that I conducted over several years um, before I, I wrote the ebook, the Prodigy Kids Self-Worth Parenting Paradigm ebook, I what I didn't know was that your conscious and your subconscious gets automatically like inherited by your children. We all have things we're healing from that are, we can't necessarily see in our subconscious, but are they reflected back to us by other people? Um, it's the things that we get triggered by, mm -hmm. by ourselves or, or by others. And it's actually really a gift because it's pointing you toward an area that you can't see, but one that needs more healing and more love. And when you give that particular part of yourself more healing and more love, and you talk about neuroplasticity, um, I'm fascinated by that too. And, and I've done my own work on myself in neuroplasticity. Um, you, you can make changes. So for me, I want to be the best version of myself and help support my kids in, in their own passion projects and their own dreams and what makes them happy. You know, it's pretty simple, but what I found was in, um, what I found was that you could do your best you know, and when I make a mistake, I'll apologize to my child or I'll, I'll tell them that, you know, I made a mistake. But I think the most important thing is to realize that mistakes are learning experiences and, and you can learn, you can learn from them. And I tell my kids too, listen, you may agree with some of the things that I do or some of the things that I, I don't do, um, but they're in alignment with love and, and I'm doing my best um, as a parent. And um, as my kids uh, have gotten older too, uh, they're my teammates. You know, I, I listen to them, you know, I listen to them here. And, and I can give you an example too. Uh, interestingly, all three of my kids are incredibly headstrong and very, very independent. So, you know, playing a monopoly game with them when they were younger wasn't always <laughs> highly competitive, wasn't always uh, the best thing because pieces would go flying because they, they all wanted to win. They all wanted to beat <laughs> each other. And yeah, I was playing, I was like, oh my God. Uh, they're beautiful qualities. So I really had to learn to um, allow them to grow within themselves, but I also had to teach them, you know, you, well, you got to respect your, your sibling, you got to respect me, you know, there's boundaries. Um, some of the things, like, for example, like, uh, 
I had to learn recently with my daughter that you can um, you can give your child all the tools and all the help you want, but ultimately the decision about how they live their life is up to them. So I really had to learn recently to take a step back from that and um, and practice what I what I preach to honor and respect her choices, even if I don't necessarily agree with them. Um, she's 17, so I really had to and to respect her privacy. I don't want to mention what particular situation I'm talking about, but that's something that I really had to learn to to step back from. And as a parent, uh, you know, uh, yeah, being you know my kid's spiritual teacher, if you will. I, I, I uh, gave my kid kids wings and you got to let them use them. Mm-hmm. You got to let them use them. You got to let them test them out. You got to let them use them. So I, I, um, yeah, like, I, I think that, uh, in answer to your question, uh, I try to be the best version of myself. And you mentioned this a, a few times too. Um, kids learn most by watching you, mm-hmm. by how you live your life and how you do things yeah so uh they learn the most from that and uh yeah I just love them so uh that's good yeah I mean I can say right now like I I know that I wasn't the best of parents um I wasn't a conscious parent because I was young I was young and I wasn't very prepared to be a mother at the age that I was and so I think that that really took a toll on how I raised my child, even though I know that I, in that moment, I was doing my best and I still instilled in him that he was precious, that he was loved, that he was smart, that he was worthy. But I know that there are times that he picked up on how I didn't feel worthy. And I'm sure that that has rubbed off. Um, And so that I, I can't stress that message enough that we're trying to convey is that when you are raising a child, you need to be developing or focusing on your self-worth just as much as you're trying to instill that in your child because they pick up on everything. They observe everything. They are sponges. And so if you are demonstrating self-worth in your own life, as well as teaching them self-worth and responsibility with their choices and actions at a very early age, because usually that mentality is, oh, they're too young to have to worry about. They shouldn't have to worry about responsibility and making choices yet. Well, we can find delicate ways like what you were uh, talking about with the food um, in a very, in a very delicate and healthy manner. So that when they are older, like 17, you can go, you know what? I have done my work to the best of my ability to instill this in them at an early age so that when they do get into that, that age bracket of starting to make choices for themselves, figuring out who they are and all the changes that they're going through with their hormones, I can be more hands-off because I've done my part and they need to understand that they have choices and consequences of those choices, some of which those consequences might come from me, or it might come from, you know, school, or just life, and they need to be able to fall. I think that's a very important um, thing that they do. And this is something that I had to learn myself is that I had to learn how to be more hands off in his older years, and let him fall, let him learn, let him figure it out, because that is what makes them more resilient. 
that they can find ways to figure things out by their choices and consequences. So yeah, absolutely. A very powerful message there. Yeah. yeah. Essentially what you're doing, Lori, is you're letting, you're letting life teach them and life is the best teacher. And, uh, I think, I think that our society is, is very external focused and that's why our job at Prodigy Kids and with the self-worth parenting paradigm, this new way to, to, to raise our kids with positive self-worth instead of our, our current shame-based punishment model, which I, I think is completely broken. You can ask Brene Brown. Um, I, I think that um, raising kids with, with self-worth is, is really a, a path to, to true happiness. And um, it's, it's mission critical for, for parents. Um, and that's why I want to I want to share my message um, with parents and help educate them. And um, so they can raise their own kids with self-worth and, and lead happy lives themselves uh, too. And I think that's, that's what life's all about. Okay. So you've mentioned this a few times now, let's talk about your ebook. It's called self-worth parenting paradigm. And I read it over and there are some wonderful messages in it. I want to share some of the quotes uh, that we can speak on a little bit without giving too much away because everybody should read this ebook. It's really great. Um, so let's start with this one. Um, parents need to understand the proven neuroscience that our words and actions form powerful thought patterns, core beliefs in our child's brain of self-worth that have permanent and lifelong repercussions. We were just touching on that, right? Yes. Um, the prodigy kids self-worth parenting paradigm took me years to create years of neuroscience study and it's also based upon my own personal life experiences and it's a wonderful digital publication um, that teaches parents a neuroemotional methodology to connect with their children in everyday experiences so they can build a strong foundation of self-worth and it's broke up broken up into three critical articles align develop and interact and you touched upon uh, an important quote and we hyperquoted it actually um, because it's in these everyday back and forth interactions that you have with your child that you're either developing positive self-worth or low self-worth. And I know what it's like firsthand to grow up in an environment where I was yelled at every day, berated every day, spanked often and shamed shamed over money, shamed over who I was. And the current shame-based parenting model is completely broken because all you're doing is raising kids who grow into adults with low self-esteem. They have addiction issues, psychological issues. And I really think that self-worth and what we're teaching with Prodigy Kids is the answer to solve the global mental health crisis by the way we raise our children. Because when you grow up to believe in yourself and in your dreams and your right to a happy life that you deserve it, you're able to bring your own gifts into the world, your own life purpose, your own soul purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the path to happiness. Um, so that quote, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier too, young kids are so impressionable. I mean, if you, if you tell a young child their brains are so, especially their subconscious mind, that pigs fly, they're going to believe that a pig flies. Literally, your subconscious brain is like just this database, if you will, you know, where, where all these um, interactions, you know, 
uh, the neural connections um, get stored. Mm-hmm. And then um, you're either repeating subconscious patterns from your childhood that are positive patterns or ones that that aren't, you know, um, maybe you didn't get the love from your mother, you know, growing up and then you repeat it in, in a later relationship, you know, with your partner. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the uh, the Align article specifically talks about how important it is to be present focused with your child. And, you know, in today's high tech society, you know, everyone's on their their iPhones or their Androids and and. They're not really having those like, you know, true moments of connection that you see all over Instagram, you know, with, yeah. with, with your, with your kids to be present focused. And, and, and that means not doing anything else, just, yeah. just interacting with them. Well, They'll like feel that said, love. Like you said in there, it said no app yeah. or toys can replace a true emotional connection between a parent and child. And obviously over the decades, like, you know, I'm coming from a place of, yeah, I remember watching black and white TV. We didn't have cell phones back then. We didn't have computers. And then all of a sudden, here we go. We got computers, we got cell phones coming in. And then all of a sudden we've got these social media platforms and we are being a little bit more consumed with technology. Now, obviously technology to me, I think is a great thing and it can be very valuable in in learning and connection and whatnot. But I do believe that sometimes it pacifies certain situations for parents who need to be able to have quiet time or to be able to concentrate on doing what they're doing. And so they present a device or turn on the TV for their child. That is going back to that quote that I was just reading about words and actions form powerful thought patterns. Think of it this way. If you're constantly giving your child a device or putting them in front of the TV, and I think this might be a good time to say, how many hours a day do I do this or how many minutes a day and then start to calculate that it adds up and think about it this way the time that the child is spending on a device or a computer that you allow them to be on is going to instill in them that they are not worthy of your attention bottom line like it's hard to swallow but it is true we understand that we need to get stuff done, that we need to concentrate, that we need to have a, a little break from whatever the child is doing and how it's making us feel. But we can find new ways of we can find new ways of being able to interact with our child in order to reshape how they are responding, but also how we are presenting ourselves, how we are coming across the en- energy that we are putting out to them so that they can better manage their time. And I remember when I was a kid, like I said, we didn't have these things. I was tapping into creativity and imagination, playing with dolls, playing with a puzzle, things like that, that were a little bit healthier. Um, But I was also allowed that time because I think being allowed time to run with your imagination is very important. So I think being on your own as a child being curious, being playful, being imaginative, going and exploring, like I was a kid that would play in the ditches and stuff, (laughs) is good. And allowing your child to do that is very important. But there's a different message that is being sent. If you are handing a child a device or a computer, because that is taking away from a very healthy neural development um, of of interaction. And also in a sense, it can decrease a child's imagination depending on what they're playing with. Right. 
Um, and so I think it's very important that we are very conscious of how much screen time our young children are getting, right? Yeah, Lori, I had a similar upbringing too. I wasn't allowed to watch TV growing up. My dad was really strict. So I, I, it was actually a good thing because like you, you know, I learned, I read books a lot. I was, I was out playing all the time and, and I learned to use my imagination and, you know, I'm a writer, I'm, I'm a poet. I'm also a designer at heart. So that creativity, I, I, I draw upon, you know, inspiration like that. And that was uh, important to me, you know, listen, I get my kids screen time. Um, well, I mean, we all get stressed out as parents too. So sometimes you just have to do that and take a break for yourself, you know, yeah. parenting's hard. And, um, but I do limit it and I get, they haven't always liked that throughout the years, but um, I mean, I've read before that Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, they knew that the dangers of too much screen time. And I read that they didn't allow their kids to have any kind of devices until they were at least 14, until their brains reached a certain level of development where they can handle it. And then they were limited, you know, at that. So um you know, and I, I taught my my kids that, and hopefully they, that sunk in. But um, yeah, in in that particular ebook, in the develop article, I, that's where the most amount of neuroscience is, and that's where we discuss the subconscious. But that particular quote that you you talked about, no Albert toy can ever replace a true emotional connection. You can't. No no robot, no technology will ever be able to replace a true human connection, a feeling of love between a parent and a child and how the vagal nerve works biologically and how it goes into how the billions and billions of neurons are, are connected in certain ways. And again, you're either gonna create neural connections of these billions of neurons of positive self-worth or low self-worth. And that's the beauty of it. That's why our grand motto is a loving moment lasts a lifetime because it's that that true emotional connection. And it doesn't have to be, I'm not talking about, you know, you need breaks for yourself as parents too. But when you do interact with, with your child, you know, make it, make them meaningful, make the interactions or back and forth interactions. And actually I cite the center for the developing child at Harvard university. I'm really in alignment with their, with their philosophy and, and their science and their teachings. And they, they call them, um, I didn't know this. I, I developed my, my own terminology about loving moments, uh, but they call it serve and volley, like tennis or ping pong, you know, these back and forth interactive moments. Uh, and, and I talk about that too in, in the ebook. And um, I, I think that um, parents are well-meaning and they're trying to do their best, but we're not taught this. We're not educated on, on these things. And that's where Prodigy Kids comes in and um, to, to help spread the word about how important, you know, your child's brain development is. And, you know, a, a piece that I just really briefly want to touch on too, when it comes to teaching your child self-worth and, and giving them that, that connection um, I think a very important piece, and this is kind of like what you use the word trigger, like what triggers me yeah. is if I'm out in public and I hear a parent or a caregiver, um, try to hush a child who's crying. And I've heard, I've overheard now, no crying's allowed. And I'm like, no, yeah. because I think that's another thing mm -hmm. that really, really is detrimental to how a, um, how a person develops later on in life is how they handle their emotions. If their emotions are stifled in any way when they're young, even told to stop crying, um, can completely shift in this, this idea that they are not allowed to express their emotions. And so this can later lead on to um, some psychiatric 
dysfunction and um, mental health issues such as, you know, depression, anxiety, so on and so forth, because, um, you know, it gets locked up and stored in the body. And this is a message that I convey constantly is that memories are stored in the brain and trauma is stored in the body. And so this can also lead to medical and physical health issues uh, down the line. So that's something to kind of reflect on, um, you know, to anyone who's listening about like how you were raised and maybe if, if you're dealing with any kind of mental or physical um, uh, anomalies to kind of look back on that and say, wow, do I, do I feel like my emotions were stifled or any way, or how, how was my interaction with, with my parents and look back on that. And I seriously love the the um the community that we're that we're creating is the cycle breakers because we can be cycle breakers we can take that initiative and i think that's my number one message in my podcast is like you Mm -hmm. can be a cycle breaker it takes work it takes discomfort but you can be a cycle breaker and that's it's it's um i'm there like i'm there i'm working on i feel like in my in in my current situation though i feel like i was a little too late in discovering that because i have a grown child who, you know, um, I know that has some, um, repercussions from, you know, how I raised him and, and whatnot. And I'm looking back on that, but it's not too late for me to at least break the cycle within myself. And that's what I've been working on. Um, may I, may I add something, Lori? Go for it. Love, love, love makes the world go round. It's never too late. Love makes the world go round. And, um, you know, when you're mentioning about your, your son. So, uh, and also I, I, emotions are, are critical because it connects you with yourself, your inner self, your inner world. And I've had to heal my own trauma and it hasn't been, been easy. And, but I choose to, because I want to be the best version of myself in in this lifetime. And I have my mom to thank me for that. I was just going to ask you, um, so, um, out of all of this, like who has been your inspiration? Who has inspired you in life? That's another great question. I have to say God. I have to start with God. God being my inspiration. Um, and gosh, I've been inspired. And through God, you know, uh, these people came into my life. So many people have inspired me. Um, my mom was number one. I, I'm not going to take my last breath in this lifetime until I reach my fullest potential. And uh, I have my mom to say thank you. I remember though, growing up, I, I just remember looking at my my family, my parents and thinking I was so different from them. So different. I'm like, where's all the love here? So different. And I, I really wanted to search out people who were living a different life, a better life. And I played a lot of sports growing up. I love sports. And I remember, you know, my parents were watching uh, TV one day. And I was fascinated by it. They were listening to the interviews. It was a, a baseball game. I forget what two teams were playing, probably the Mets. Uh, and I'm a big Mets fan. And uh, and another team at the time. And I don't remember who won or who lost, but I remember I was mesmerized listening to the, the team that lost and the players. And they were the way that they were framing how they lost. Yeah, we made some mistakes, but we're going to learn from them and we're going to do better next time. We're going to improve and we're going to make sure we don't repeat those mistakes. So that that was inspiration that that came early on. And then then I started listening to all the sports teams and I was always really intent on listening to the team that lost because I love their their 
their mindset and their way of thinking. And I wasn't growing up in that kind of environment, but I, but I adopted that. And I started reading all these books I can get my hands on, you know, um, business books, real estate books, books, how to be a millionaire. I, I, I wanted to like, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I really wanted to like live a full life, but I didn't know what that meant. And then I started, you know, reading about other people who found what they love to do. And then they made a lot of money doing it. And the money always followed. Yeah. And, and I remember reading these books and, and in particular, I can't remember who the author was, but what he used to do every day, he was very, very successful. And by successful, I don't, just, I don't just mean monetarily. He had a happy life with happy, rich, fulfilling relationships in life. He created an impact in the world to help others to serve. I'm like, I want to do that. I'm meant to do that. I didn't know what that looked like until years later. And then he was outlining in, in his book how he did that. And he talked about the first thing he does in the morning, you know, after his meditation practice and when he gets to his, his work uh, desk is he does the top three things that scare him the most. He did it the most because that was how he found he grew and he evolved and then he was able to bring more of himself. So then I started doing that because I wasn't learning it from my parents. So these were just early influencers on, on me, uh, you know, that kind of got the ball rolling. And throughout the years, um, I just had, you know, people roll up into my life and, and have, yeah, yeah. positively impacted me as well too. So. That's, that's fabulous. That's really cool. Wow. <laughs> okay, Karen. So what is one takeaway message that you would like to provide our listener today, whether it be a parent caregiver who's listening or a teenager, young adult who might be tuning in or both? Great. I have two. Okay. Um, first of all, I wanted to say, Lori, how much I enjoyed doing this podcast with you. Thank you for having me on and allowing me to talk about instilling self-worth in children from a very young age. Um, okay. Two, I, I coined two phrases. Um, they're in various stages of trademark right now. Uh, key takeaway message for parents and caregivers. And I told my kids this, start with a hug and with a hug. Start with a hug and with the hug. And what does that mean? Kids relate emotionally. And so many parents try to relate to their children logically, but they, children don't develop logical skills, you know, until way later, until like at least the age of eight, definitely the age of 12. Kids don't become problem solvers until the age of 12. And because kids relate emotionally, you know, for that for the Align article on how to be fully present with your child and for them to feel the love between you, it's get down to your child's eye level. And if they're upset, they're having a tantrum, whatever, start with a hug and end with a hug. Because when, wouldn't you want to be treated like that? If you were really emotionally upset, kids don't understand emotions like that, but they relate emotionally. They will feel you. They will feel you. And here, and I can, I can relate this to for, for uh, parents and caregivers for us grownups. Um, Think about when you're in a space with someone, you're having lunch with someone, dinner, business meeting, whatever. When you look at the times that you've had the most fun, it's always, how did that person make you feel? And I guarantee you, you came away feeling good after that interaction. And that's what you want for your kids to go away feeling good. It's the same thing. And then uh, a message that's more universal, and this goes for everyone, teen, tween, parent, kid, whoever, it's follow your heart. And I've taught my kids this from a really young age, whether it's making a simple choice about which shampoo brand to buy or 
a bigger choice is to, you know, like a career move or something like that. Always follow your heart. Your heart is your inner guidance system. It's your intuition. It's always the peaceful answer. It's always the one that feels good to you. As long as you do that, that's the path to a happy life right there. So follow, follow your heart. And um, especially for parents using their intuition, I think is so important. You know, um, you can read the science, you can gain the knowledge and read the books, but ultimately, you know yourself and your child better than anybody. Follow your own heart and follow your own intuition. And uh, that'll always serve you. Nice. (laughs) That's very, very helpful. Very insightful. And um, yeah, so tying, tying those two messages together is, you know, um, I'm sure a lot of people still, you know, may go, well, how, how do I tune into my intuition? I don't know what that is, or I don't know what I hear, or um, how do I follow my heart? And I'm just going to simply say that there are resources out there for you that can help you with that. Um, So if you're really eager to learn how to tap into, you know, trusting your intuition, listening to it, uh, listening, trusting to your heart, things like that. There are wonderful types of like meditation techniques and out there that you can really tap into that can be helpful for you. So I just wanted to put that out there in, in case anybody's like, how do I do that? So, um, yeah. Okay. All right, Karen. So we're going to finish off this episode with a quick fire round. Okay. So the, this is a series of three questions that I ask every guest and it is related to your own personal healing or growth journey. Um, and so the segment is called fixed fucked freed. And so here are the questions. The first one is what is something that temporarily fixed you? So it's something that was kind of like a temporary bandaid. It, it helped you in the beginning, but it wasn't an overall like long-term solution for your like well-being. I'd say EMDR. Okay. Um, I, you know, my own healing journey, um, I've done EMDR in the past and it's very concentrated on your brain. I felt disconnected from my spirit, my body, you know, my heart. Um, so I, I later found out that, and you mentioned this earlier too, trauma is stored in your body. Mm-hmm. So when I started doing more somatic healing work, I felt that that really worked for me, um, mm-hmm. to heal. Yeah. yeah. Tapping into the body. Absolutely. Good. Okay. So then what is something that just fucked you over from the beginning? It just was not a good solution to begin with. Oh gosh. Um, okay. I, I can mention a, a recent example. Um, I want my, I think every parent does, you want the best for your kids. You want the best for your kids. And, and I've always, um, try to be mindful of, you know, as they grow and get into different stages, you know, they get more independent. So as a parent, you have to back off. Um, but recently, um, my daughter had a health issue. She's totally fine. She's totally fine. Uh, but I wanted her to step up in ways that I thought would help her more than what she was doing. And we kind of, uh, you know, butted heads, so to speak. So um, it was a lesson for me, and I know this, to take a step back and honor her free will choice um, and also uh, allow her to, to live her, her life like that too. So that was hard for me. Um, 
you know, I actually thought, you know, am I having any residual things from, from my mom because my mom didn't take care of herself, but know that it was, I was cleared. I, I healed that already. It wasn't that just like you love your kids so much. You want what's best for them. But I, my daughter has an incredibly strong sense of self as my other two boys, she's got her cheek on the ground and she knows herself really well intuitively and, and otherwise. And I trust her judgment. So I just had to let that go. But at first I was um, butting heads with her on that. So, so what I'm hearing was unsolicited advice. <laughs> yeah. Too often. <laughs> okay. okay. Cause I mean, I've, I've been there. Like I, I can relate to that. As well. <laughs> okay. Yep. Exactly. Yes. We kind of need them to develop that autonomy and go with that autonomy. Absolutely. Um, okay. So final question, what is something that ultimately freed you? What was a solution for your healing and well-being? That's another great question. I think my spiritual practice, my spiritual practice, um, you know, I, I've been meditating for over 20 years now. Um, and that's just led me, my spiritual practice and also my, my life purpose work. Um, with prodigy kids. So just my connection with God. Awesome. Great. Okay. Well, thank you again so much, Karen, for being on here today. I think that you really um, brought some wonderful messages and I encourage people to check out your ebook, uh, the website, which includes the ebook as well as your IG, your Instagram and YouTube information will be in the description of this episode. So people can access that and check out the Addy plate and everything. Um, and a, a couple other resources that people can also tap into if they're curious about like how all of this actually works on the neurological side is uh, check out um, some wonderful scientists and, and uh, medical professionals such as Candace Pert. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk. So Bessel van der Kolk was the author of The Body Keeps a Score. So really, really helpful. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. And so he taps into the childhood trauma and everything as well. Thematic, yeah. And then Dr. Joe Dispenza is another great one as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard of, okay, yeah. I actually have, yes, I have a great book here too on somatic yeah, healing. So, um, yeah, all of those are other wonderful resources if you want to delve in a little bit more on, on that dynamic of, of how our um, neurological self is, is developing and, and trauma in our early years and uh, how that can carry with us. So excellent. Thank you again, Karen, for being here. And I appreciate you so much and your message and your cause and everything that you are doing. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Thank you again for tuning into the Healing Compass podcast. I hope you have found today's episode valuable in some way. If I can help one person, I am fulfilled. To keep informed and to help support me in return, be sure to subscribe to my podcast to be alerted of new episodes and also share my podcast with others. If you are in the San Diego area, most of my guests are residents and you can look into the services that they provide as well as all that I offer. My website is www.healingwithsway.com. Also, be sure to check out my link tree at Healing With Sway with all kinds of helpful and informative resources, as well as scientific sources related to various therapies, mental health, and human biology neuroscience mentioned in my episodes. I am not an expert yet, but I value the importance of accuracy with any claims made and sharing what I do know and learning along the way. If you have any questions or requests for topics that you would like to have discussed on my podcast, 
or you would like to be a guest and speak about your healing and growth journey or your offerings, feel free to email me at healingwithsway at outlook.com. Thank you for tuning in and be well.